Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Nishan Subedi. Nishan is VP of Algorithms at Overstock.com. Nishan, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you so much, Sam. Glad to be here. I'm super excited for our conversation and looking forward to digging into what you're up to there at Overstock and how you think about architect for machine learning there. But before we do, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and journey to machine learning. Yeah, uh, awesome. So I guess a question of how far back we want to go. (laughs) Essentially, I was going to go into physics and get a PhD there, ended up really uh, fascinated by engineering and wanted to kind of get into the industry. So uh, started with uh, systems engineering, um, DevOps, and then kind of just learning about computers in general, and then slowly moved towards at Etsy. So I found kind of just the user user interaction and then serving relevance for the users, super fascinating. So that got me into search at Etsy. It was Right about the time where like, we knew for sure we need to apply machine learning to search to drastically change how our systems operated. But there wasn't a whole lot out there in terms of how you do that for e-commerce. Like, Google used to talk quite a bit about how their systems are run, but uh, the challenges for e-commerce end up being slightly different. So we kind of stumbled our way through some of that. And then I think the industry kind of picked all of that by storm. And so been kind of on, on a wave to catch up ever since. So I was a scientist at, at Etsy for years, and then uh, I, I moved to Overstock, a very similar space. Essentially, the, the biggest appeal for me was uh, the ability to kind of architect and build these systems almost from scratch. And well, that's partly a lie because we still have some legacy systems, but uh, you know, <laughs> re-ranking layers and, and kind of layers above, we kind of built from scratch and, and designed it uh, at least with kind of the learnings and the scars from before. So it was a really exciting journey that way. And so I went and led the ranking team at Overstock and ended up as the director for Earth Sciences. So that was a new organization that I headed up primarily because we needed to bring the science of the machine learning with the engineering of the teams that used to own search. And so our organization, like my focus was really bringing the two kind of skill sets and people together. And so since then, my current position is, is VP of algorithm. So I work with, with the other executives at the company through their kind of challenges and goals, what they want to achieve and, and how uh, machine learning and AI capabilities can help them with, with those challenges. So that pretty much brings us to where I am now. Awesome, awesome. I'm curious about the the specific title VP of algorithms. It's one that, you know, I've seen it before. Like I think Stitch Fix has a, a VP of algorithms. I'm sure lots of companies have a VP of algorithms, but it's not the most popular title, like as opposed to <laughs> VP of MLAI or data science or something. And I'm curious yeah. if it says something specific, is it more common to companies whose primary use cases like search or recommendations or does it say something about the culture or the focus? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's an interesting question. I, I don't know if there's much specificity in that regard. So the way I look at it actually is like our function is to build algorithmic products. And while they may be machine learning and AI focused, generally we find that starting out with something much simpler is the way to go. So, you know, I 
didn't want to kind of just confine it to MLAI. But then I think, well, two things about the title. The other other thing I've heard from companies is the title of like chief scientist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is an organizational leadership role. So I think something like a VP is is more closely aligned because there's the whole kind of people management side of it as well. But then a focus on building algorithmic products as opposed to being functionally oriented with like, we have to apply machine learning or AI to it is more why I identify with the title more. Yeah. And I know there's many variations of it out there. <laughs> sure. Sure. Awesome. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the way you use algorithms at, at Overstock. <laughs> to what degree are your use cases primarily search and recommendations driven? And maybe tell us about some of the other ways as well. So we're a we're an e-commerce platform, right? And so as you'd imagine, as a marketplace, like a primary focus for us is giving the users what they want or what they're looking for, what they may not be necessarily looking for or what they really need or want. And so things around discovery is a major focus for, for organizations. So that includes search and recommendations. Those are kind of coming even closer together as fields because it's harder and harder to distinguish between what's search and, and what's recommendations. And in addition to that, so we can handle the other parts of the business. So we have a huge kind of uh, launched on the marketing side as well, including like on-site advertisement platform. So we kind of build and own the sponsor products interface as well. So the auction system that provides for those capabilities. So so that allows our partners to market on our platform and also leverage our kind of platform and, and kind of the systems and smartness we've built to advertise offsite. In addition to that, we also kind of work very closely with the marketing team on our ads and, and the spends we do externally to like Google and Facebook and, and platforms. We're also involved in kind of pricing decisions. So there's lots of algorithmic components that go into that. And promotions is, is very coupled with pricing decisions. So promotions like what goes on sale, uh, what kind of coupons to offer to customers. So we're, we're very involved there as well. And the other big area is uh, around uh, the sourcing, merchandising operations side of things. So various algorithms deployed for the either demand forecasting or estimations of shipping time, shipping rates, those kinds of things. So we're pretty much ingrained across all parts of the business from, from an e-commerce or like retail supply chain perspective. And, and I think we're still maturing as an organization. There's We, we have more demand uh, than we can fulfill as an organization at this point in time. It's a good problem, but I think it's it's because it's e-commerce is such an interesting place and there's just so many various business problems that lend themselves really well to kind of algorithmic and machine learning solutions. So that's, yeah, that's it covers it, I guess. And, and, and in terms of the thinking about the, in terms of the company and the core uh, business model, we didn't really talk about that, but the way I would put it, like not having talked about it with you or, or <laughs> knowing anything about it is, I think of it as like a, you have elements of a marketplace that people can sell on the, the platform, but it's more like retail and that you're controlling pricing and things like that, just based on the description that you gave? Yeah, pretty much. Um, we have various shades of that. So we control okay. pricing for a certain product, but we also kind of allow partners control over prices under certain conditions. 
I really think of it as a marketplace and also like with our sponsor product program, it's a marketplace within a marketplace, but then lots of the parts of, of retail apply, right? Where costing of goods, like what to bring on, what's trending, what needs to be promoted, how do you manage for inventory? So you kind of need to handle all of those concerns. And so the, the difference is we're fairly lean in terms of the warehouses we have. And so we do rely on our partners quite a bit. So we try to not hold the goods the, within within our warehouse or our control. So we don't buy in a whole lot of them, but we work out our contracts in ways that uh, lend themselves to agility and, and ability to scale and expand. Okay. Uh, I should have asked you this up front. Were you there for the whole O.co thing? <laughs> that, keeps coming, that keeps coming up every time. So it's funny, like there's not one, I guess, you know, company standout goes by where someone doesn't ask about O.co. <laughs> no, I wasn't there. I, th- I think it's still a work in progress, not quite complete. Uh, we may have lost the focus on that at this point, though. <laughs> One of the things that you're really excited about is machine learning architecture and architectural patterns. Um, you know, introduce us to that topic and some of the ways you think about it and its importance in real world machine learning. Yeah, I, I am super fascinated by the topic, and I kind of I went down to the source of like where where did architecture patterns? How did that become a thing, right? And and in software, I guess the most famous example of it is like the the, gang of four. of four. Yeah, exactly. The the gang of four and the book that's, you know, probably in every software engineer's bookshelf. And so I, I went through the book and like the preface actually talks about Christopher Alexander. I don't know if, if you're familiar with that name. He was a wow. he was an architect from like way back. I, I'll get the year wrong, but like smart guy. Mm. And the way he looked in looked at architecture is like and home really like they're building houses and functional spaces is there's a set of kind of objectives you wanted to fulfill. And so really he talks about it as like forces that shape what you're building your house, your space needs to look like. And he kind of designed this whole system and like, you know, over, over his career, his, his thesis ended up super fine grained mechanism for like listing them out and like he had a maths background so like he solved like mathematically how you'd go about approaching that optimization problem and then later on in like later publications he's like yeah you know like i was kind of obsessed about the math but these diagrams and and ways to think about it is super so what he talks about it is like a pattern is effectively a contained solution or like product or you know encapsulates uh, the various tensions across forces in ways which its boundaries are simplified and can be integrated into various contexts, right? So what that means, there might be a lot of different interactions acro- across components that go into a pattern, but it interacts in fairly reasonable, fairly specific ways with external systems. So yeah, that kind of, I think that really impressed upon me. And then, so he also talks about what the process in terms of going from, you know, like what you would call requirements, right? Like the things you need to achieve when you're trying to build something Mm -hmm. to a functional solution. And I mean, the waterfall process, lots of these things are like, you list out all the requirements, you start building it. And and at some point it's done. And then we said, no, that's not a good way to do it. We need to be more agile. So like take a little bit of requirements and then kind of build 
from that and then keep revising it. And what he talks about is fairly similar, although he, he uses different languages, but effectively to a point where you want to continue evolving your design. Like if you have a set of patterns, right, to solve a particular problem, you need to keep fiddling with them till your forces are in harmony, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. right? So so it's, it's you can't just work off of one set of requirements. It's never one set of requirements because you don't get to check off a requirement saying, yeah, this is completely satisfied. It's there's always various degrees of satisfaction mm-hmm. and you kind of continue fiddling with things, shaping them around till your important requirements are sufficiently satisfied. So he talks of it as a living process, you know, and living spaces is kind of how he talks about it. So, but then what's been super interesting to me is like, how does this apply to uh, machine learning and, and spaces there? And yeah, I, I guess the really fascinating thing to me is like when I when I observe, I mean, like working as a scientist, observing scientists can work, right? Like we go through a lot of pains to create this like isolated, like clean workbench environment where you can very precisely test things, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like we're hopefully we've derived some kind of insight or like some applicable methodology to the general problem we're trying to solve. But then a lot of times, like what we're working on ends up being fairly removed from how it lives in production, like what the actual business problem is, just because of, you know, like what we need to engage in the scientific process, right? And so the model, if you will, so like all the fine-tuning, fiddling, like hyperparameter tuning you end up doing, that ends up in this super isolated environment, but it actually needs to go back and live in, in the production context. And then there's already so many things that can go wrong in going from here to there, right? Um, like I've had various examples in my career of, oh, wow. Okay. I think this is working. Like all my offline metrics look great. And I try to productionize it and I'm not getting the same metrics anymore. So what's wrong? You know, oh, I missed this feature or like this thing, like I completely forgot to account for this particular constraint that exists in production, which I didn't kind of bake into my assumptions when I was trying to model it. So I think generally, like when you when you think of kind of applications of machine learning into industry or, or whatever, like specific problems, you're trying to take something you've carefully cultivated in a workbench, in a lab environment, and trying to apply it, uh, trying to put it in this production context. And a lot of times, like the actual learnings uh, or most of the learnings come after you've put the initial stuff in production. So what's the patterns there? What are the forces in action there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some really important things end up being consistency of environment. So like whatever features you end up with here, how does the system or the tools you use ensure that that same thing applies or is, is you know, uh, the constraints aren't violated when you, while you put it in that particular context? So yeah, it's, it kind of go on into those things for a while, <laughs> but that's the general idea of how I've been approaching it and... and Still not done. It's still, I think, a work in progress for me, but still very fascinating approach to look at. But when you think about architectural patterns, is architectural patterns synonymous with a design pattern? You know, those are both kind of abstractions, as is an algorithm. Like, what's the (laughs) difference between an architectural pattern and an algorithm? Are we talking only about the embodiment of an algorithm, like a deployed system, is it that it's a higher level abstraction? How, how do you think about all that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really interesting question. There's also the engagement, right? There's the human element of it. So I don't think you can create these patterns devoid of the human in the mix. And and the human can be the customer. It can be the scientist that's kind of coming up with the algorithm. It can also be, you know, the various stages or people responsible for parts as it goes through the deploy process. But in a very vague, you know, non-specific way, I, I think all of them need to coexist in one place because I'll give you an example of what I'm thinking with this. Like my previous point is as to what I mentioned in terms of like a lot of learnings coming from once you put your algorithm in a production context. So like once you put it in front of the users, right? So let's just take the search example. You have a algorithm that ranks the search results in a particular way. Once you've lost the, the initial version, a lot of which direction you end up evolving the algorithm in is a direct function of, well, the people responsible for doing it and the learnings that they have in the process, right? And the way you set up your system directly affects the kinds of learnings you end up having. So there's, you know, things you don't see, you don't observe and you don't learn from. And so to me, it's kind of this very holistic picture of how all of these different components interact with one another. And the algorithm, what's the output is certainly kind of a function of it. It's it's a codification of, I guess, you know, so to, to your point, it, there's two levels of abstractions here at the very least, right? One is the algorithm itself is a pattern, it's a design architecture to solve the user problem. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, there's a system that's designed to solve that underlying system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a lot of ways, what I'm hearing you describe is methodology as opposed to so architectural pattern or design pattern. So maybe like the thing to do is to get more concrete, like, do you have a list or catalog of architectural patterns for ML? Yeah. So I guess these, I think at this point, a lot of these end up being fairly standard in terms of like the workplace and the method, the methodology, those are the easier things to talk about. So, you know, I think those are things that resonate with people and end up being solutions for, but there's some products. I, th- I think like the Google platform has, has come a really long way in terms of what it offers. So we're currently building some prototypes with pipelines as the Google product, but effectively it's the managed solutions for Kubeflow. And Kubeflow mm-hmm. really emerged as a workflow orchestrator, right? Uh, across uh, for machine learning kind of tasks and, and the kinds of properties and constraints that go into it is, well, these are long running tasks. So, you know, you want something that's able to handle training that could go on for like a week or or something. You want it to be fairly repeatable. You want to be able to code up your DAG. And so, you know, you, you have things like recursion and conditionals encoded into it. And the other thing is, well, I think initial versions of this tried to kind of just bake one solution into it. But I think the I think Qflow is going to pick up quite a bit if it hasn't already. There's lots of companies using it, like even Spotify. They built a bunch of their uh tools around this internally and then are have been talking about moving to the standard that, that is Qflow and, and maybe leveraging more of the GKA tools. In fact, they had a big part in designing the systems as well. But uh, the, the core abstraction of Kubernetes, I think, is very powerful. And so what it allows you to do is work with the abstraction of, of containers, right? Docker containers, where you bake in all of the process. So like, doesn't matter what you're training Library is how you set it up and stuff. 
the more important thing is like this stage is a training stage. And then, uh, so in training, what you get is all these kind of outputs. Uh, so, well, you, you need to feed in inputs that come in various ways and you need to observe certain metrics. And so, so some of the offerings as part of the library and actually the managed tool is like, you can have confusion matrix, you can have, you know, training accuracy measures, you can tack on like tensor words where you're investigating features. So I think we started seeing more of like the abstractions being nailed down much more. So I think that when we, so in concrete terms, it's, we needed to kind of really nail down what these abstractions that were important is we needed to nail down where the right kind of flexibility was required. And so, you know, like saying, oh, this library is an end-to-end system doesn't work for everyone, right? You have to be able to say, well, you might need to structure your training in different ways. You might need to structure your data transformation in different ways. So the transformer is kind of another abstraction, I think, which is going to uh, is super useful because uh, because uh, so actually, and TensorFlow Extended has gone a long way in terms of providing for these as well. And so, one of the modules in TensorFlow Extended is like the things called stats generator, statistics generator, or something. But basically, like what that allows you to do is it gives you summary statistics, aggregate statistics for each of your feature rows. So you kind of describe your feature in its general properties, like this is a numerical thing, right? So what kind of things apply to it? Like you have a mean, medians, you know, null values, whatever. And so these serve as very quick sanity checks for common problems that you end up with when trying to build machine learning models. And so that's a good abstraction. And and then there's like the, the model validation components. And so what does that include, right? Like the SHAP values that come out of the features and, and things of that sort. So I think on a technology level, you know, like something like Qflow, which allowed us to orchestrate uh, different kinds of properties of a machine learning, but also encode all of them into one diagram. So it has the concept of an experiment and experiment run. And so as you're thinking, as you're kind of playing around with an algorithm, you'll probably like ad hoc, like fiddle with your workflow, fiddle with your training, fiddle with various stages of the pipeline and do ad hoc runs. And as it, like at some point you're, you're like, okay, my run is reasonable. Now I need to run hyperparameter tuning on it. And so there's abstractions around like, this is how you can do hyperparameter tuning without needing to know any of the details of how you set up your entire experiment run. You just specify your parameters and kind of, there's kind of various algorithms that determine it for you, right? So uh, hyperopt be like a good example. And so there's a library built on top of a Kubernetes orchestration engine where again, all of the details internally are abstracted away from you. So the pattern there is hyperparameter tuning. And what it works on is the interface of Kubernetes where you provide an interface to specify different, just like value ranges. And once it knows how to kind of, you know, fiddle around how to figure out what's good, what's bad, it can does that for you. And that just ends up being generally applicable to all machine learning problems. And so I think the reason I'm kind of more like obsessed about this is like, we're a medium-sized company, you know? And so it's, we can't build like really fancy workbenches and, and kind of infrastructure and tooling for all different teams. Like every team can't build it on. It just wouldn't be, scalable, it wouldn't be good, right? So these abstractions that allow us to build it once that can serve the entire company's needs, like the entire, the different machine learning team's needs is is very appealing. And the other thing is, I think it allows you to now have some 
kind of standard and consistency in terms of how you approach the pipeline, the delivery of value, I should say. So like agile is, is generally accepted as a good practice for software solutions, but then machine learning solutions like productionizing machine learning solutions adds an additional layer of complexity on top of that because, well, it's experimental in nature, right? So with the software, you can say, okay, I want features X, Y, and Z to be part of this print or whatever. And what do you say in terms of like, if you want to reasonably manage your delivery of machine learning products, but also not constrain uh, innovation and constrain the different directions things could go, like your stages of your pipeline end up looking very different, right? Initially, it might be by the end of this sprint, I want to be able to identify what a reasonable approach to this problem would look like. And so what I'm delivering is maybe like initial metrics and, you know, like my reasoning behind why I think this is the right kind of solution to this problem. And so by having these various stages, you can map the output of each stage into standard language and vocabulary uh, for the company as well. And so it allows you to, I think, you know, interact much more reliably with other parts of the business because a lot of times when you're kind of in, like you want to incorporate these other teams, you want to get ideas from business, you you want to work together. But oftentimes I found we struggle with like, how should we involve them? So it allows for standardization in terms of practices and communication patterns as well. So mm-hmm. that was a huge ramble, but hopefully <laughs> <laughs> covered it, it sounds like what you're describing is that um, I think kind of ultimately the value of something like architectural pattern or a set of architectural patterns is, you know, communication, you know, and alignment and both within an organization and across an industry. And ultimately you want to get towards uh hey if you know you're in scenario x you should really think about doing thing y and it sounds like you're building that out from kind of uh many of the things you talked about were like ml opsy kinds of things to just throw Mm -hmm. out a catch-all phrase Mm -hmm. like you know if you've got long-running you know jobs you know there's probably a workflow system required and maybe that's dag based right if you've got, I don't know what's you. I don't think you mentioned oh. any other. Yeah, patterns. actually, <laughs> I probably just went off on a tangent on just one topic. <laughs> uh, so feature stores is another challenge, and that's maybe more of a you know performance, right? So, uh-huh. so uh, again, if we talk about search, I guess we want to squeeze more smartness, which means like more complex models, right? Like more nonlinearity, like deeper models into production context, mm-hmm. but like deeper models take a lot of time to like run. And so there's this trade-off you have to balance in productionizing machine learning of like, how quickly do I want to get the results to the user? And so, you know, that like the latency ends up being some kind of upper bound in terms of how complex your algorithms can become. Mm -hmm. And And a lot of, I guess, tips and tricks to getting search systems in production ends up being how do you effectively manage this complexity? So how do you get more, most of the, non-linearity or like capturing the context to happen in the training context so that your inference can be low latency, right? Mm -hmm. So 
So feature stores, I think, is is another kind of good pattern that's kind of coming, becoming very broadly kind of talked about and accepted at this point in time. And so it's like Hopsworks and uh, Gojek has one uh, Feast. I think Feast is probably going to become a standard with with the Google pipelines as well. There's other companies that provide for it, and like they didn't used used to exist when we kind of started out building these things, mm-hmm. right? So there wasn't a pattern, and exactly like you said, like the industry wasn't talking about these things in in standard ways. Like we used to talk about the technology itself. We used to say, "Oh, Cassandra is a really good system for doing," you know, like because it it, it kind of for the cap theorem it provides you consistency and and forget the other one, but basically like, availability and partition, availability. And, uh, partition resilience. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to go back to my notes on that, but <laughs> essentially it give you give you a distributed cluster and uh, like the constraint there is like, well, you don't know what keys you're querying for, but you need to do a multi across let's say a random set of IDs. And so, mm-hmm. so people talked about, oh yeah, this technology is good, that technology is good. It became a technology focused conversation. And, and, you know, as an industry, we're shifting more towards, uh, I think, architecture based conversation that way. And so the underlying technology is perhaps less important, or maybe it's taken for granted because there's just robust solutions that exist at this point in time. Mm-hmm. But feature stores is another like really good example there, right? So so what it's done in the recent solutions, which I think is really important, is be able to unify your batch and kind of real-time workloads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the other uh, thing there is lots of sci- scientists have been, you know, like diluted by uh, like really promising offline metrics, but it's because you somehow snuck the future into your featureization, right? So. <laughs> So, so it accounts for that as well, where like how you handle like timestamps and and how you handle you know what gets allocated in your aggregation for a feature is handled by the semantics, the language of how you set up your feature store. Mm-hmm. And then there's also kind of model production deployment kind of architectures, I guess. Yeah, so I guess that's that's at least three. <laughs> so when I think about those examples, there examples that we've already productized a lot of that space. I'm wondering if there are, like, are there emergent architectural patterns or something, you know, for which you don't really see any standard solutions for yet, but you, you, the pattern thinking as a tool tells you that we're probably gonna, you know, see more at some point. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good question. I think that probably takes me more into the the model architectures themselves. So like we've Mm -hmm. we've made a huge push towards as an industry towards embeddings, right? And representation. So Mm -hmm. I think uh, the general way I'd describe it is while we focused a lot on the end output, I think we're more and more focusing on the representation of various kinds of systems. So example is like, you have image representations, right? You have semantic representations, uh, and you know you have user representations in various so shapes and forms. Thing that the ne- a network learns in the middle turns out to be like super valuable and applicable exactly. in lots of ways. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, and I mean, we've been using it. There's like multiple papers published around this too. But like taking that second to last layer, right, and then saving it. But then one really cool thing you can do is like one team can build it all the way up to that second to last layer, or like they can build it for their specific problem. 
but then someone else can kind of apply it for their final optimization task. And there's a whole bunch of kind of literature around, do you fine tune your weights? How deep do you go? Like which layers do you freeze? And, and all of those things. I think like I personally, at least haven't seen, uh, this is the way to go in terms of how you build your representations and how you combine them in different ways. You know, so like, do you build the architecture for the different layers and train for each individual task? Or do you bake in these kind of last layers, if you will, for the different kinds of representations and then end up with like one global optimization task? Or do you train with multi-heads? Do you mix all of your different optimization tasks together when you're building a representation and then maybe fine-tune on that layer? And like, I think people have gotten good results in, in many of these directions, but there's no, yeah, this is the way to do it, right? I think we're seeing some kind of standardization in terms of the BERT architecture for NLP tasks, and but then extensions of it into other kinds of tasks also get super interesting. It's really good at capturing like spoken language or like language, uh, the way people use it, but then the way you create titles in your like products for an e-commerce site look very different. So the applicability of the same model there are fairly different. So maybe there's an abstraction there in terms of just codifying, you know, or learning around the the semantics themselves that can be more general as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, lots of that already exists, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think we're moving to less and less of needing to do these things yourself, even with, I mean, if, if we go with like the part architecture, for example, uh, the way you kind of pick out, so the mix of random signals versus like the masking that it does, right? I, I think that's a very general pattern that's emerging and probably going to be used for multiple different systems. Masking of tokens when you're doing your learning on, let's say, one line of vocabulary. So I think there's going to be more of those come. It's just, I think it's more difficult to kind of state them as, yes, this, like, in the model training space, it's, it's much harder to say, yes, this is the standard, this is the pattern. I think those are much more open and vague and evolving in various different forms. But yeah, but those would be, I guess, you know, my examples, at least like closest to mine examples of, of evolving patterns. Okay. One of the big yeah, innovation, one of the, the, the most powerful things to come out of kind of that early design pattern thinking wave in software engineering was actually conceptualizing this idea of anti-patterns. Have you thought about how those apply in machine learning? Have you come across folks kind of categorizing or cataloging ML (laughs) anti-patterns? Yeah, so we have these, like, we've created some engineering principles for us. And, like, I think the heart of it is, like, simplicity is is still kind of number one. I think a lot of and say anti patterns, but I, a lot of like people maybe coming out of school and stuff. So like academia prizes novelty in approach, mm-hmm. and you know. But then in industry, I think at least like yeah, like the most effective solutions, the most sustainable solutions are simple, right? It's it's how much you can simplify your solution while still having it be effective for the problem. And so uh, we're very conscious about trying to simplify our designs as much as possible. But then anti-pattern I see is just gearing for the most complex solutions, right? Like, oh, I we need to train this deep learning model for X, Y, and Z tasks. I'm like, 
no, maybe just like averages is enough. And, you know, that kind of goes back to, I guess, my title. Like, I don't want the impression that all the work we do is, has to be machine learning. Because I think a really important question is like figuring out where machine learning is, is, is a good use case for or not. And so another higher level anti-pattern is just like thinking machine learning is the solution to all problems. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's not. And a lot of times, you know, people that I guess kind of business owners that don't have a good understanding of it, perhaps shrug off on the thinking that's required through a problem because they're like, oh yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly the problems, but that's what machine learning does. And, and so <laughs> I see that as a huge anti-pattern, right? If you don't know what you're trying to go, if you don't know what you're trying to solve for, if you don't know what outcomes you want to see, you probably shouldn't throw machine learning onto it because it's not going to get you any, like machine learning is, is uh, I think best handled when there's at least clarity in terms of the objectives you want to achieve. And before you get to that point, it may not be, so, I mean, it can be useful for generating ideas too with like some generative models and stuff. But so that's, I guess, a broader anti-pattern. Cool, cool. I'm curious, do you see this idea of architectural patterns bleeding over into like organizational patterns and culture and topics like that? Yeah. Yeah, I hope it does. And I think it's a direct function of, you know, like people that grow up with these kinds of things being more in organizational leadership roles. Mm -hmm. I think we do see some of this in software. And I kind of think of the squad pattern, if you will, is, is something that's at least for me, emerged over time. And so this was something I think Zappos... Squad, like question answering? Squad, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, sorry. I, it's, thank you. That's a good clip. So squads meaning like, you know, a group of people, right? Solving a problem. <laughs> yeah. It's like, where did that go? Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so... I think that's what you meant, but... No, thank you. It's, it, came to mind. <laughs> it took me a minute to, you know, collect my thoughts in terms of how do I kind of explain, like, where does it come from? Okay, yeah. squads as opposed to teams as as organizational structures, right? Okay, and so tell, tell us more uh, about that. Okay, so effectively, I think, you know, the age-old problem with organization is do you have a functional structure or do you have a product oriented structure, right? Like, do you have a general manager over a line of business who handles all of the different kind of needs uh, for that specific product? Or do you have layers of, of, of things set up? And the answer is, I think if you go to either extreme, it's a wrong answer. Um, so the answer is kind of somewhere in between. And given your current context, like the challenges you're working through, like, you know, I think it's it's an evolving process. But then one thing we kind of struggle with is like, so to be effective at machine learning, especially, you know, when you don't have like a large portion of your organization dedicated to this problem, right? So for us, like machine learning algorithms is maybe like, you know, 5% of the overall organization size. And so how do you, I guess, you know, like allocate enough resources and management speak, but, you know, how do you make sure that there's people thinking about the right problems from a product standpoint, right? But then there's also the other tension of like, you also want to maintain a functional center of excellence. And so how do you kind of navigate those two tensions? So a lot of the, the functional orientation gives you teams 
right? Or I guess it's easier to talk about the shortcomings of teams in a functional orientation. You have a machine learning team, you have a data science team, you have a UI team, you have a, you know, whatever, like backend systems team. And then, but then like a lot of times, the biggest impact you can have on business, the, the biggest changes you can make rarely sit within these functional boundaries, right? Like they require you to bring in people from all sorts of different contexts, like different places together. And so as opposed to teams as the structure, so like, you know, like, and then you could say, okay, maybe we just shouldn't have teams at all, but then that ends up being fairly chaotic because you need some organizational structure because structures are good for certain things, right? And and so one thing like I think about a lot is like, how do I maintain a center of excellence around machine learning? It's right, like how do I make sure like, everyone's getting better every day and everyone's getting deeper in their problem space. Everyone's learning more. And how do I create an environment where people can learn from one another? And so that ends up in these functional structures where, so the algorithms unit cares a lot about algorithms and machine learning, and we keep up to date on what's happening. You know, we, uh, we, we try to talk about the, the kinds of innovative things we build and stuff, but then from a business and delivery standpoint, like we have to work and collaborate with other people. And so, if it ends up being like teams working with teams, you've moved your communication up a level. The managers need to now talk to one another. So, you know, if you're talking about, okay, now we need to also work with, uh, let's say, you know, algorithms is working with data. And then we also need to work with like UI. And so now it moves up one other layer. You're no longer talking about just managers. Now it's like directors have to be in sync. So how do you avoid this huge, you know, communication tax on work? And so like squads as a structure is, is really appealing to me, which is saying, well, just combine people from a bunch of different functions. And then it can be done like well and poorly. And I think there are some kind of patterns emerging from this as well. So like, I guess the kinds of patterns that I look at for, for squads is, and we've actually codified this uh, internally. The first is, you need to know, you need to have a very good idea of the problem you're trying to solve before you even talk about spinning up a squad. So what is the outcome that you want to achieve, right? That has to be number one. And so based on the outcome, then you kind of look at, okay, what are the functional components you need to kind of constitute this squad off? And then like kind of work through with the respective managers, directors in terms of creating that body. And then the second thing is like, a squad has to terminate at some point in time. So squad cannot be long-lived. You know, there is a particular duration the squad assembles for, and they kind of go back to their functional units at the end of that, that timeline. And the other thing is accountability. The squad is accountable for kind of the decisions and the direction it goes. And so we, we make sure there's product manager, like product owner as part of the squad as well. Um, and, some some anti-patterns, you know, in organizational structure is like people talk about the, the product manager being the CEO of the company and, and kind of that gets misinterpreted in a lot of different ways where they're like, mm-hmm. oh, well, my decision is king, right? Like, I'm going to tell you what to do. But like, especially with things like, you know, like machine learning and algorithmic products, it's the decisions are better made by the domain experts, right? And I, I personally don't make a lot of these decisions because like, I'm not in the weeds. Like, I don't know what's going on. I I'd like to think I hire good people and I trust them to make the right decisions. And so, so that's, that's good organizational practice. I think that, so 
how it translates to a squad is like the squad is responsible for a decision, uh, but they also need to uh, they also need to converge to a decision, right? And and so, but then that also can become very like a, a bad pattern if you're going for called consensus. Like if if you're going by decision making by consensus, you probably end up in the lowest common denominator of the, you know, the, the least ideal, but satisfies most of the checkboxes kind of solution. So the flip side is someone makes a decision and it doesn't understand all the pains everyone else has to live through with that decision. And so, mm-hmm. you know, filtering down to saying we need representation from all of these functional units, but they are empowered. To, so they still need to get along. They still need to kind of come up with a decision, but this unit makes the decision. It's, I think that's, you know, that's something very powerful. So it also instills a sense of impact. So another one of our engineering principles, and we shamelessly borrowed it from Airbnb, is like, own your impact, right? So we asked the squad to own the impact. So we've kind of presented them with a problem. And then, you know, they have complete freedom to come up with the solution they see fit. But then what we're looking for is the is the impact that comes out of it. And two things that emerge. One is like, well, you can't own your impact if you haven't defined the impact. So the metrics, the the measurement becomes really important, right? So that's now, so we have almost like a template we fill out in terms of whenever a squad takes on a work, like there's a standard template and there's various stages of the template that you fill out at various points in time. And part of it is also like the product manager, interestingly, like ends up doing really good work in this structure when they're like, I'm no longer the decision maker. They, but they have a lot of context in terms of the product and like, you know, everything else. So they align their efforts towards presenting the squad with the most pertinent information so that they can come up with the right decision. And they act as as a member of the squad in coming up with the right decision. So you get a very, you know, collaborative environment that way as well. So th- th- that I think would be, you know, the I think the most successful kind of organizational pattern that we've instilled here. So start with an end in sight, right? And then pick the right people once you define the problem set the right metrics, empower them for all the right decisions and and then kind of make sure there's a termination point and, and kind of checkpoints along the way to get there. And all of those in isolation sound like, you know, very generic, like management principles. But then uh, when you kind of bring those forces together into one kind of structure, one pattern that's recognized in the organization that you can fall back to, right? Like, so now you start kind of, empowering people to be like, okay, these are kind of the problems squads are good at solving. So like you start squads emerging in all all sorts of places or like, oh uh, yeah, this looks like a squad problem, right? Let's spin up a squad, squad for this thing. And also you have a template to reference. So like this organizational learning is happening on a much greater level. Like, and then the process itself is a, is a living entity as well. As we learn more, as we figure out more things, we add that into the template or the way we operate. So we also have a common vocabulary and also an evolving set of best practices. And one super interesting thing that's going to emerge from this is like, we find like we found that whenever a team needs to evolve uh, the way it approaches work, like squads are really good ways for sharing information. And so the other pattern or point here is like the ownership isn't taken away from the team. So the sets of practices, you know, like, code review practices and stuff that a team has kind of impressed upon. A squad isn't beyond a team's practices, right? A team member is a representation of the team there. 
And so ownership has to be clearly defined. Once you've laid out the problem, once you've identified the approach you're going to take, ownership has to be laid out before you even start solving the problem. And that way, these end up going back to the team's practices. But what we found is like something new emerges as as kind of working as a squad. And that changes a team's approach to work. So like these squad members end up being ambassadors for change within each of the teams as well. So that that was another like really good thing that came out of this practice for us. It sounds like squads are one design pattern or like organizational pattern at Overstock mm-hmm. as opposed to the organizational pattern. Like does it, the squads coexist with other ways that the teams organize? Well, yeah, they, they coexist with teams, I think, you know, as being the major organizational structure in the org. That's the formal organization structure. But then in terms of getting work done, we have initiatives as well. In- initiatives at Overstock are kind of codifying into a, a set pattern at this point. So we started initiatives maybe three years ago, like with with a serious consistency, I would say. And, um, you know, like I've, I've been a, a initiative captain as well a couple of years ago, and it's probably better left to kind of business or, or product owners. But uh, I think that's, that's a, a broader structure. So well, I can be more specific in the thing that I was curious about. Okay, yeah, please. The, the patterns that I've seen elsewhere is comes from kind of the, the DevOps idea of, hey, we're going to have a team of, you know, whatever the functional mm-hmm. people are that are required for to own a product. And that team oh, I owns the product indefinitely. Uh, and, and so, for example, you might have software engineering or, you know, data science in our, our case, and data engineering and an ops, ML ops type of person. And there's some service that they own and they don't, it doesn't terminate. They own that product forever so that, you know, there's not this handoff into, right. into ops oh, that right. own the problem. And I, I was really kind of thinking about that in contrast to squads have a definite termination date. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. So I guess my assumption is that already exists and it does exist in our domain. So we look at it as like, what's the right bounded context for a particular team or an organization? And we can divide ourselves that way. So, you know, inside of algorithms, we have people that lean more towards software or lean more towards data or even systems, right? And mm-hmm. so we have like the, it's, it's, it's a little kind of rant, but like DevOps, like, we do refer to like DevOps as a title in a row, but at the heart, like DevOps is really how you talk to one another, right? How you collaborate and work. It's like started with development, working with ops. It was more of a cultural thing than a title for someone. But ultimately, I think, you know, like the good evolution of that has become, we want to provide the right kind of capabilities inside of a team. And those absolutely exist in all of our teams. Yeah, the specific thing that I was getting at, though, was this idea of the team that builds the product, you know, includes dev and ops and they own the product forever, as opposed to a squad, uh, you know, that may build a product and then is disbanded because their mission is accomplished or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so we have both of those. And and teams do indefinitely own 
I'd say not technology, they own problem spaces. So one example of this is like, you know, again, around search, we have core search and and ranking. And ranking is the machine learning kind of team. So they handle the re-ranking layer, right? So once for a search query, let's say, you know, the results have come back, their job is strictly reorganizing the results that come back. And there's various kind of things that you can work out in terms of boundaries there. But generally speaking, and then the core search is responsible for the systems that give the results back, right? Now, I guess one example of, so we had a squad around relevance because we needed to change uh, how we did search. And what the solutions that emerged is like, oh, we need to, and this is fairly common, we need like, we need to add more machine learning capabilities into our recall or, or like our candidate set selection problem as well, which is a core search problem, you know, not necessarily a, a, a machine learning team. So there's two kinds of things, right? Like one is, do we kind of, you know, like, does that team learn more machine learning practices or do we change the contract in terms of ownership? So where we ended up with is like, well, there's now a contract in terms of the kinds of data that feeds into the indexing process. You know, so like there's some machine learning stuff that ends up as part of our indexing pipeline and, and ends up there. And so the contract, like the contract was preserved in this particular scenario. It didn't change. There was just additional ownership of, of one team and additional handoff to the other team that way. Now, same kind of example, you know, we ended up building uh, like the um, going from an unstructured query to a structured query. We have like a, a internal product that does this, but like, you know, being able to say if you're like red leather shoes, right? So red is a color, leather is a material, you know, and then shoes is the object, let's say. So they had to kind of work through who owns that solution. And the contract we kind of ended up with is like, well, there's a library that does the parsing and stuff that probably makes sense for the machine learning team to own, but it living in its natural environment in the right context needs to be owned by this other team, like Core Surge, because there's lots of like systems level challenges that come with being able to incorporate it as part of the larger pipeline. And they have like a broader view into search as an ecosystem. So it lives there better. So, you know, it's, I, I don't think either of these would work in isolation. If, if you strictly just have squads and they just build whatever they want and, and, you know, kind of, they're like, okay, I'm done with this problem. I'm moving on. You're going to end up with like chaos and lack of ability to manage these things. Right. Yeah. So that was a very important part for us in that the squads have to work with the teams. They have to represent teams when they come to these solutions and dissolution of a squad means responsibilities are at a point where they're the teams that own those specific boundaries are able to kind of, you know, merge them into their processes. And it's definitely not trivial to get to that point. Awesome. Lots of super interesting stuff that we've covered. Before we wrap up, I'm curious your thoughts on where do you have a sense or or vision or expectation for like where architectural patterns and thinking kind of gets us as a industry over the next few years? Yeah, I think it's going to allow us to do a lot more. I think it's going to allow us to, you know, build uh, general tools. And, and I mean, the cloud is a perfect example. We're going to leverage the cloud a whole lot more as an industry, which means we're going to be able to solve the specific business problems a lot quicker, a lot mm-hmm. more effectively. And I think we're going to lead to a transformation. It's just like with DevOps, right? Where we said, okay, operating your system should be part of the, the team's responsibility. I think we're going to get to a point where 
machine learning kind of ends up being a part of the team's responsibility and we might end up shifting more from a functional structure across vast suites of, kind of organizations to more of an embedding structure. Now, I think we still, there's going to be lots of challenges to figure out, but I think the right architectural patterns will absolutely get us closer to that world. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Nishan, it was wonderful speaking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much, Sam. This was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.